Okay, what's happening, everybody? Welcome back to an all-new episode of Low Value Mail on this January 9th, 2024, the year of our Lord. Am I a little blurry? can't tell. I feel like maybe I'm a little blurry. Doesn't matter. It's fine. Uh, welcome back, everybody. It's episode 91 of Low Value Mail, and do we got a banger for you this evening. Oh, man, am I excited about this. Joining us today, we have Richard Booth, who is, uh, produces the OKC Facts Substack and a fellow at the Libertarian Institute. And uh, he was actually recommended to me. I So I didn't know much about this whole OKC. I knew the official story about the OKC uh, bombing in 1995. I didn't know that there was some sort of, uh, you know, little monkey business. I guess you could say. Uh, and then Jose from Tower Gang, uh, shout out to him, uh, recommended. He said, Richard is the guy who knows the most about this, has done the deepest of dives. So he's going to be here with us shortly to discuss all things Oklahoma City bombing. Before we get to it, please like and subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button. Uh, just do me a favor. And if you listen to this, if you're a Spotify listener, or Apple or whatever, just like leave a review. Just like do one of the things. You know you will should do it. Um, and then if you want to support the show, there's a few ways. Patreon.com slash low value mail. You become a YouTube channel member, even though one day they will demonetize this channel almost certainly and take them all away from me. Whatever. Um, and uh, on Twitter, you can just subscribe to my, my Twitter. Uh, you get one of those fancy wrenches that everybody's asking about. If I owe you a wrench, DM me on Patreon or Twitter. Uh, just so I can verify it, and I will give you your wrench. Fancy stuff. Uh, and once I hit, I think we're at like 350 uh, paid subscribers. Once I hit 500, I'm going to be adding a half hour to the show. So it'll be a two and a half hour show, and that extra half hour will likely just be straight open lines. So um, please uh, do that if you want If you want more show and more open lines. Um and I'll give actually I'll give away a couple of YouTube memberships tonight because they allow that to happen. Bathhouse. So there's gonna be no low value mail next week. I'm gonna be in Europe. I'm gonna be uh, with Ryan Long. We're gonna be uh, traversing Europe doing stand up comedy. So if you live in Europe, a bunch of cities. I'm sure you probably know about them at this point. But if you don't, uh, come check us out in one of the cities. We're flying to Dublin tomorrow night. Uh, but the Bathhouse, the next two weeks. God willing, will be hosted by Derek Drescher. I don't know what he's going to get up to on that shit. I gave him all the stuff. It's his show. If you don't like it, you blame him. If you like it, it's because of me. So anyways, uh, that's all you need to know uh, about that. There will be so no low-value mail next week, but we'll be back the following, and uh, I will be away for the next two weeks of the bathhouse. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, let's bring on the man of the... Hour, Richard Booth. Richard, how you doing, man? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Doing pretty good. How are you? Excellent. I am very well. I just need to reframe myself. Okay, here we go. We are on. So thank you for joining me uh, today uh, to talk about the Oklahoma City uh, bombing, I suppose. So I didn't know. I'm like fairly well versed. I, I wouldn't call this straight a conspiracy show, but you know, I'm, I'm very open to conspiracies. I'm not like the craziest. Like I don't know every conspiracy. This one I had never even heard of. That this was there was any even conspiracy angle behind the OKC bombing until probably 
maybe three or four months ago, whenever I contacted you or around around then, because Jose from Tower Gang, uh, I saw a James Corbett clip actually that went viral, and then I was like, "What? I didn't know any of this stuff." So um, I'm just gonna as a reference point for where we can get started because this is on YouTube, and so this is gonna get the little YouTube banner underneath like you know their official youtube so this is what it's i pulled one from a different uh video but this is what it's going to say this is based on the encyclopedia britannica and we'll just use this as a reference point i suppose um so it says the oklahoma city bombing terrorist attack in oklahoma city oklahoma u.s on april 19th 1995 in which a massive homemade bomb composed of more than two tons of ammonium nitrate fertilizer and fuel oil concealed in a rental truck exploded heavily damaging the alfred p murrow federal building a total of 168 people were killed including 19 children and more than 500 were injured so that's currently below especially for people who are watching this after the fact so i guess let's just get into it what what specifically are the things that people don't know about should know about that how, how did you get into this like what what specifically got you into the oklahoma city uh i guess conspiracy or yeah yeah so basically i followed it when it happened so i was reading about it in the paper and like myself like other oklahomans we just wanted to know who did this you know who was behind it and after like a day or so Maybe I think it was two days. Uh, the FBI released uh, sketches of the suspects in the bombing, and it was two sketches. It was uh, uh, John Doe one and John Doe two. And so for a couple days, we're we just have these sketches, and we don't know the identity of these people. And we, you know, everyone's kind of watching and tr- wants to know who did this. Well, Tim McVeigh was arrested that that week, or he was uh, apprehended, I should say, by the FBI. He he was actually in jail for uh, concealed firearms. He was carrying a, a weapon and was pulled over, went speeding, and he was uh, in jail. Anyway, the FBI was able to uh, track him down and identify him as being one of those two people. So we know then that, okay, John Doe 1 is Tim McVeigh, and if you look at him, he looks very much almost identical to the sketch. But then the other guy, John Doe 2, we're all kind of waiting um, you know, who is this? When are they going to catch him? And what really got my attention was a couple months after the bombing. Well, it was in actually June of 1995. The FBI came out and they said, oh, John Doe number two, he doesn't exist. He doesn't even exist. He's, he's you know, not real. And so when they said that, after I had been reading all these newspaper reports and reading these eyewitness accounts of people who saw McVeigh with this other person, I'm like, well, what do you mean he doesn't exist? You know, at that point, I then became very skeptical and began to follow the case even more, because if if they hadn't done that, I probably would have just kind of moved on. But the fact that they're just coming out and telling us point blank, this guy isn't real and doesn't exist when we have all this contrary evidence, that really caused me to a hyper focus on it. And so what was the evidence? Because that was one of the largest manhunts in uh, like U.S. history, correct? Yeah, really. At the time, it was the largest uh, manhunt in the FBI's history. That's for sure. And so what does the FBI say regarding John Doe 2 and the explanation of how he's just like, you know what? Whoops. He actually doesn't exist. Right. So what they say basically is that all of the people at Elliot's body shop, the three people who worked where the truck was rented from, um, they say that these people, they were all 100% correct about John Doe number one. They got him, you know, down just to a T. He looks just like McVeigh, yet they are all mistaken about John Doe number two. And they say that these employees all confused 
uh, Tim McVeigh when picking up the truck for a pair of people who'd come in the day after McVeigh to pick up a truck. And so they're just insisting that these employees are all confused with their descriptions of the witnesses and they're right about McVeigh, but they, they totally are confabulating when they're somehow imagining that another person was with him, which I, I just think is ridiculous, especially when you compare uh, what they saw there at the body shop with what the people in Oklahoma City saw. When we know that the FBI has 24 witnesses that they interviewed in downtown Oklahoma City who all saw the Ryder truck with Tim McVeigh, and they all said there was a passenger in the Ryder truck. And so they're... 24 uh, different people the, said that the Ryder truck that eventually was to explode, yes. had someone sitting in the front. 24 people all, all said that, that McVeigh was in that truck with another person, including, for example, a gentleman by the name of Rodney Johnson. He was a catering truck driver, and he drove past the Murray building every morning at about 9 a.m. On April 19th, he was heading over to uh, doing a tomato delivery to to uh, uh, Brook, uh, Brookstown. And so he's driving by just minutes after uh, McVeigh had pulled up, and he actually has to slam on the brakes on his catering truck because two guys are running across the street, you know, in front of his truck. So he slows down and he looks up and he, he makes eye contact with and he sees McVeigh there with another guy behind him. They cross in front of his truck and then he speeds back up, continues on, and the bomb goes off. It literally lifted the back end of his truck off the ground. Rodney Johnson uh, was one of the people that was interviewed by the FBI. He identified Tim McVeigh as uh, the first of these two people who crossed in front of him. So he saw these two guys as they made their escape from the rider truck that morning. And he distinctly remembers two people. And so it just, it lines up all down the line. If you look at all the witnesses, they all saw McVeigh had another person with him. Have any witnesses come out uh, publicly to say like there was definitely uh, not, not the, from the, from the truck, the body chopper or whatever to say right. like, no, like the guy, we're not mistaken. Like they're, oh, they're, yeah, absolutely. The the owner of the body shop, Eldon Elliott, named after him, Elliott's Body Shop, he testified at both the McVeigh and uh, Nichols trials, and he insisted that that he saw another individual there with Tim McVeigh. He was very insistent upon that. He testified to that fact that he knows he he knows there was another guy there because he says this other guy crossed between him and McVeigh to pick up an ashtray back at that time, you could still smoke inside of a lot of buildings. He said this guy was smoking. And in fact, when the FBI uh, gave their description saying we have two suspects in this case, he described John Doe one and John Doe two. He said John Doe two, who may be a smoker. And they got that from the fact that, that these employees at the body shop saw that he was smoking when McVeigh picked the truck up. So he very much insisted that, that he saw uh, two people that day uh, testified to that fact and felt pressured uh, by the FBI. He thought the FBI was trying to intimidate him and, and get him to change his story. And of course, it, with some people, that'll cause him really to dig in. I know it would me. And so uh, Eldon Elliott very much stuck by that. Okay. And just uh, just out of a, more of a curiosity, are you into conspiracies generally? Some, that, uh, some things like I, I'm interested in like the JFK assassination. I've always found that to be really interesting. 
but there are a great deal of, of things that I see that are like conspiracy theories that um, I just do not agree with. Sure. And just so just, just to be clear, you're not like blanket. You're not like, Oh uh, yeah. Not, so, and so what is your theory, I guess on like the explanation for the John Doe uh, number two, like what, why did the FBI all of a sudden look Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously. And six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And just say, let's drop it. Was this after um, Timothy, Timothy McVeigh had been convicted? That they dropped the... Not convicted. Of- it was after he was arrested and he was in custody. It was about three months after the bombing. Or two months. Okay. It was in June of 1995. So basically what I can discern from looking at the evidence, and this is a kind of speculation on my part, but I think it's probably what makes the most sense. Um, I believe that it was sort of a prosecutorial strategy, like the, the prosecution in league with the FBI. Uh, they really did not want to run the chance of McVeigh being found not guilty and one thing that could have caused that is if they if they can't explain who John Doe number two is, if they can't account for him, well, the the uh, defense, they could have raised a big issue on that and, and tried to say that this other guy was the primary instigator, any number of different things. It really would have weakened their case if they could not explain John Doe two. So what they did was they said he didn't exist. And then they took some of the actual accomplices in the bombing, Michael Fortier and Roger Moore, and they turned them into primary witnesses for the prosecution. So they take these these accomplices and they turn them into key witnesses. They get rid of the guy that they can't explain. And this allows them to focus on their case, to focus on McVeigh. And they only have to then prove that McVeigh was involved in this. And they don't have to account for this guy that they couldn't catch. And so it makes me think that it was a weakness in their case. They, they didn't figure out who this guy was they didn't get him into custody so therefore they can't explain him and so to simplify the process and to make their case that much stronger they just say oh he wasn't even there okay and so in your opinion because i'm sure you've you've covered uh, or you know you've i imagine you've read most that there is to read regarding this stuff what do you think happened and uh like how much of the official story is true what what specifically don't you believe uh and i guess yeah I'd say that a great vast majority of the official story is correct. It's true. Where I begin to to question it and and diverge strongly is when they start saying that that this John Doe 2 didn't exist or that this was a completely lone wolf attack where it was just McVeigh and Terry Nichols, when in fact we know that it was a group of people that carried this out. So that's where I kind of diverge from the official story. And the thing is, if if you go back and you, you look at the opinions today of certain people who were involved in the case, like Danny Colson, he was an FBI a deputy director. He was like third in line at the FBI and he was part of the uh, uh, the investigation. He will, you know, he admitted in on the BBC in 2007. He, he said that you know the FBI had 24 witnesses to McVeigh and another and a, another person, and so we know that there was another person involved. And even the 
uh, chief prosecutor, Larry Mackey, said that, you know, if you were to ask us uh, today, um, you know, put your hands up if you're 100 percent confident that McVeigh did this by himself. He said if you would ask us to do that himself and all the other prosecutors, they would have kept their hands in their laps. So even the prosecutors now admit that, that they know that's not the case. The FBI admits that. Um, and, and so what I think happened that day Boy, it's it's really tough to to nail it down. But what I can say that I I think is probably true is uh, Tim McVeigh uh, was he he planned out a terrorist bombing um, this day w with a group of what I believe to be w or, uh, white supremacists. I believe these were neo Nazis, and they wanted to carry out a war against the United States government. And I believe that they did bomb the Murrah Federal Building on April 19, 1995. And I believe that some of them who were involved in it, um, they got away with it. And, you know, that's not something that's acceptable to most people. And if the FBI drops the ball, they'd much rather just say that, uh, oh, these other people don't exist than admit to it. Yeah. And I guess the FBI would say that there was a risk that, what, Timothy McVeigh would have gone would have been uh, gone free had they basically not... yeah there's a risk that he could go free that he could be found not guilty that he, um, the uh, defense could raise the issue of John Doe number two and argue that Timothy McVeigh was nothing more than a driver or something like that and they wanted to avoid you know if you have a if you have a giant hole in your case like a, a co-conspirator who everyone saw and you can't even tell us who this guy is that's a major liability legally i think a skilled defense attorney could absolutely utilize that to to uh to get their client free um so that that certainly i think was a big liability and, and was there any um uh like did the timothy mcveigh give any sort of uh statement or he did not. He actually seemed to uh, really relish in making himself into kind of a martyr for uh, his uh, the people who held his set of beliefs. He kind of made himself, I guess, the, the sole figure. He accepted all guilt. He would not implicate anyone else um, except for Terry Nichols. He would implicate him, but no one else and really seemed to take this role as a figurehead for the movement. He he was a, a prototypical uh, fall guy, and he absolutely, I believe, uh, relished uh, that role that it, that it, and the attention it brought him. He, he really was a good soldier in that respect. As a soldier, his job was to make it so that his uh, fellow soldiers could fight another day, and he did that by um, just denying the existence of any John Doe two, saying there there was no other mastermind, there was no one else involved, it was just me. But you know everything he says is totally contrary to what all of these witnesses saw. And what was Terry Nichols' involvement in the? Uh... Yeah, Terry Nichols was like one of his buddies uh, from the army, and basically it's a guy that McVeigh met in the army and continued to associate with when he got out. And what happened there was uh, Tim McVeigh, when he was putting his plot together to bomb the Murrah building, he was able to recruit Terry Nichols to help him in doing various tasks. And that was things like, for example, buying the um, tons of fertilizer, getting diesel fuel, helping him mix the bomb. Uh, and he actually was using Terry Nichols' credit cards for things like this, for purchases, and using his vehicle. He, he really seemed to be like he was kind of manipulating and using using Terry Nichols. Gotcha. And so just in terms, cause I imagine that there's a kind of community out there of people 
in regards to the story. Are there elements that other people might say are true that you don't believe? Absolutely, there are. Um, there are a lot of people who would tell you, uh, for example, they might say they think that Tim McVeigh is a patsy or is totally innocent. I totally disagree with that. I think they're absolutely wrong. It makes no sense whatsoever, especially when you look at the things McVeigh has said and you look at the evidence and you look at the witnesses. It's very clear that he was a key player in the bombing plot. And there are some people who like, you know, some of these conspiracy theorists will say, oh, you know, he was just a patsy. And that just it shows that this person has not looked at any of the evidence, has not read any of the transcripts or the material. Uh, there are some people who they like to say that they think that like the government bombed the building or something like that. And they, or they think it was like uh, um, some type of, uh, black ops type deal. And so I tend not to go there because I like to stick to the evidence to say, what does the evidence tell me? And what I can say for sure is what the evidence tells me, that there was at least another two or three people who were involved with this with Tim McVeigh. Is that's what we, we know that from what the witnesses saw and what the surveillance cameras recorded. And that was two people in that truck that morning. So there definitely is some diverging when it comes to what I believe and what some people who look at this case might I believe they tend to, I think, go into areas that are unfounded, in my opinion. Okay. And you have a post on your Substack, which people can go check out. Um, and the, the, I think your pinned one uh, talks about the surveillance cameras a lot, yeah. right? So obviously, surveillance cameras were probably a little less ubiquitous in 1995 than they might be now. Was this footage, like, have you personally seen any of it? No, no, I've not seen the surveillance footage um, that, that I talk about on there. Um, and to date, I think really the only people who may have seen it will be FBI agents and a couple of people who work for Dayline NBC who screened their surveillance footage and almost bought it from an FBI agent in 1995. But uh, how can you buy it? Like that was like a, like a kind of off the books kind of thing? Or? Absolutely. Uh, okay. An agent tried to sell the surveillance footage to Dateline NBC for $1 million. And what happened there is you had a, um, an FBI informant who worked at NBC. And this FBI informant contacted the FBI and told them, hey, we've got this FBI agent who's trying to sell us this footage. And so very quickly, in fact, I have the FBI memos on that and they're dated just a day or two after the meetings with, with Dateline. So the FBI knew very quickly that they had an agent who was trying to sell this footage and they initiated an Office of Professional Responsibility investigation where that's kind of like the FBI's version of internal affairs. So they're investigating it and the FBI, of course, finds out the names of all the agents who have access to the surveillance footage and they find out i'm sure the identity of this agent which we don't even know who it is today that's not been released it's or never made released. public so yeah, nobody knows know. what happened to him if anything we don't know what happened to him who he is we just have some basic biographic details uh, from an article that was published about it in 1995 but we know from that article we know that um, the footage was screened for Dateline at an Orange County Sheriff's Office in uh, California and so he had his lawyer I guess reach out to Dateline and he knew this Orange County Sheriff and they tried to arrange it and they had people for Dateline come out and view it and it was evidently a tape that was a compilation tape so it featured multiple uh, video 
uh, footages that were put together on this compilation tape, and it ended with the truck pulling up to the Murrah building and actually depicted the explosion. So it would have shown the truck pulling up and the two people getting out of the truck. Now, we know this exists, too, because Danny Coulson, I mentioned him earlier, he was uh, the FBI agent in charge of the crime scene. He said on 1999 on Book TV, he was giving a presentation for his book, and he said to the audience, he said, we had McVeigh on videotape. We had videotape videotape of the truck pulling up a couple minutes to nine. So there he is admitting that they had the videotape. And we also have various articles that were published in the Associated Press at that time. There's one October 28, 1995. It said uh, videotape shows passenger and rider truck. And so this article talks about there being a videotape that the FBI has, which shows that there's a passenger in the truck with McVeigh. In addition, we have Clive uh, clips from CNN where the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, news announcer says the FBI says today that they have obtained videotape of the bombing. And so this was reported at the time. But then as time went on and it never did come out, people just kind of forgot about it. Yeah. And ha has any like d does new stuff ever come out regarding this or or is it kind of just. Uh, yeah. Kind of recycling? You had basically there were news reports uh, that came out October 28th, 1995. No, sorry, sorry. Not news like newer the new developments uh, come out like, you know, in the last five years or anything. Sure, sure. Yeah. So yeah. about the o the only thing that's happened on that is an attorney in uh, in Utah. Uh, Jesse Trinidou. He's an attorney in Utah. Has He's had an ongoing Freedom of, Inf of Information Act lawsuit against the FBI, trying to get them to produce these videotapes under the Freedom of Information Act, which they've refused to do. And that's been ongoing now for more than a decade. And so the news reports that have come out within, say, last five to 10 years have largely centered upon reporting on the Trinidou lawsuit and reporting upon, you know, why is he suing the FBI? What's that about? And, and any developments in the case. And so th those kind of cover the surveillance tapes uh, as far as looking at recent stories. Okay. All right. And so I think the main thing, which is, I think, a big part of, of this, which we haven't got to, uh, and we're going to open the phone lines uh, in a little bit. But so um, Terrence Yeeke, or Yeeke, uh, I don't know how it's pronounced, Yeeke. So this is a big kind of odd element of the whole story. And I think it's kind of what gets people going a little bit. So he was one of the first, first responders on the scene on uh, the day of the bombing. He then... Uh, winds up, what, like a year later uh, committing suicide under like pretty suspicious circumstances. So I don't, I don't, you can you can probably tell us, you probably know a lot more about it than I do. Yeah, Terry Eakey, that's one that a lot of the folks, when they look at this case, they, they like to talk about that one because it really is a compelling story. Yeah, this, uh, this Terry guy was Eakey, a, that's one a that a lot of, he's a police officer in uh, Oklahoma City, and he was indeed one of the first, he was the first one to arrive at the Murrah building and he, uh, within minutes of the bombing, and he assisted in rescue and recovery efforts and saved several people that day. And indeed, about a, it was about a year later, he was found dead in a field. Uh, he had both, both of his wrists were slit, uh, his neck was cut open, uh, and he had a bullet wound in his head you know, right up here above the temple. And so he's found just obviously murdered and left in a field. And it was declared almost immediately declared a suicide. And interestingly enough, it was turned into a federal investigation almost immediately handed over to the FBI. 
And people find that to be suspicious. And, you know, his at the time, his ex-wife, Tanya Iki, she's talked about this since then. And she's talked about all of the kind of the harassment she faced after Terry was murdered. And she's talked about how suspicious it was and how he did say that there were things about the bombing that he felt we were being lied to about. And he was questioning the bombing and uh, various aspects of it. And then he was carrying out an investigation. And uh, she talked about how he uh, uh, faced a lot of pushback from his superiors in the police department. For example, when he filed his report for his activities that day, he had to file a report detailing kind of what he did in response to the bombing because he was participating in these rescue efforts. Well, he turned in like a nine-page report, and evidently it had content in it that his superiors found objectionable because they went back and they told him he had to rewrite it and he had to resubmit a, a single-page report only and to leave out certain details and that very much upset him. Um, so he's a person who we know was a, a vocal critic of the bombing, uh, was doing some sort of investigation on his own and felt we were being lied to about something. And so it's very unusual that he's found dead uh, in a field in what clearly looks like murder if you, this guy's got his both of his wrists are slit and when his body is found there his throat is inside of the wound well, right? His neck. His, Essentially, his the official neck. story is that he like pulled over beside a farm, cut his, slashed his wrists and his neck, then right. ran out into a field, right, and then shot himself in the head, and then took out his his weapon and holds it up here and shoots like himself this. in the, the top of the head at a you know, forty five degree angle, and the, after he supposedly did that after he slit both wrists and his neck, and he would have you know, bled out by that point, probably. Um, and they, you know, find him with dirt inside of the wounds, which is indicative of a body having been dragged and it gets dragged through the dirt and the dirt goes into those wounds. So clearly his body was dragged to the location that it was found. He also had, um, uh, wounds like that, sh that would indicate that you have, uh, handcuffs or flexicuffs on. Yeah. Um, so th this was found on, on his, uh, his wrists. And so very much it does look like a murder. Okay. And you believe that that's likely the case? I believe it's a certainty that Terry Yiki was murdered. Absolutely. Okay. okay. And so do you have any inclination of who might have done that? Because that's it seems... Difficult. Yeah. Well, that's the weird thing, right? Because it seems like you don't really... From the John Doe 2 thing, it doesn't seem like necessarily this is like, you know, inside job or whatever. It just seems like they were trying to get some sort of victory here. And prosecute Timothy McVeigh and get some sort of justice, but then the Terrence Yeeke thing kind of throws a wrench in that because then you now have these two things, and if you try and I guess reconcile them together, you're like, well, how how could these now be related? And that's I think maybe where the conspiracy people start getting into like, well, is something else going on? Mm -hmm. So do you have yeah, any I, do you have any theories as as to the Terrence that angle? Well, it's hard for me to reconcile that because when I think about it and I think that Tim McVeigh was a neo-Nazi and he knew people within the neo-Nazi underground, when you look at that, you do not think that this is an organization that would be capable of arranging for the murder of a police officer and then making it look like a suicide and getting full cooperation of the FBI and law enforcement. That's not something that white supremacists are capable of. You know, that's something agree, else. Yeah. 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 And so that does tend tend to cause me to believe that there's something else going on here that we're not aware of. And it certainly points towards some type of um, maybe an intelligence operation even. Um, 
it's hard to know for sure, but it, it definitely is suggestive of something like that. Okay, but nothing has come uh, come forward like any sort of kind of. We don't evidence? have any sort of uh, evidence that would tell us. Um, pretty much, it's just been speculation. A lot of people think that it was um, the FBI because uh, Terry was going to meet with. Well, he told Tanya that he was going to meet with a couple of federal agents that day. He actually had uh, he had put in previously put in a job application to work for the FBI, and he wanted to transition to go from the police department to the FBI Academy. And uh, evidently, he was supposedly going to meet with a couple of feds that he may have known uh, regarding presenting them with evidence that he had gathered um, in terms of the Oklahoma City bombing. And he had these questions about it, and he had this evidence he was gathering. And I just think if that were the case, he really picked the wrong people to go to. He's thinking these people are probably only 100% good, and they're you know they have what's good in mind and um you know he's doing the right thing but he may have i think ended up meeting with the wrong people that day okay so um and we'll we'll, we'll talk uh, more about this uh shortly phone lines are open everybody one triple eight nine four nine two nine six nine and we have our first call of the night uh one moment please richard hello thanks for calling low value mail who am i speaking with Hey, what's up? It's Al Sweet. How are you? Hey, one moment, please, while I patch you through. And all right, you're on with Richard. Go ahead. Hey, what's up, guys? Dan, you're the motherfucker share. Thanks for doing the show, man. Thank you, sir. Hello. Awesome. Uh, Richard, um, yeah, quick quick question, Richard. Uh, do you have any suspects for number two? Any theories, any opinions? Yeah, there have been a lot of people who have been named over the years and said, okay, this person is John Doe too. What I can say is that out of those people who are named, I feel almost 100% certain that John Doe too was not, it was not Michael Brescia. It was not Husani Al-Husani. It was not Jose Padilla. These are people who are named as, as who John Doe too is. And as far as who he actually might be, um, one possibility is a guy named um uh Muhammad Ali Muhammad he was a like an intelligence uh figure who was i guess undercover in al qaeda working for intelligence agencies and he he was like a special forces type soldier and involved in terrorism and he is a person who serves as i think a possible suspect when you look at the physical description and the capabilities of the person. But the, on the other hand, there's no hard evidence that would show, you know, he's the one. And that could, same can be said for just about anybody. There isn't any hard evidence that points to an identification in almost anybody's case. That that name you put out there sounds a little weird to be working with some white, white supremacists. That's the first kind of thing I thought as well. To it be certainly honest. does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you, I mean, do you have any, I mean, there's a lot of this stuff, you know, maybe he was FBI, maybe he was CIA. And then that's why he wasn't caught is because he wasn't supposed to get caught or something like that. Any, that's the any ideas opinion. or. Yeah, that's, I, I actually, I endorse that because I try to, I think about it and think, you know, what could cause the identity of this person to be covered up like this? And I don't think that this is something that would be done for a white supremacist or for just some common criminal. I don't think the FBI would do this or that they would go this far in obstructing justice. I think what it tends to indicate is that John Doe number two was at, at, uh, at the least a federal informant. And if not that possibly a federal provocateur of some type. 
Now, is there some yeah, kind of rule with like informants though, where they can only be involved like so much in the commission of a, like? You would imagine that they would say, "Hey, you know, you can help maybe plan this," but also, isn't the point of an informant so that the actual thing doesn't end up happening? Right, exactly. You, the informant's you know, there so you can bust it, you know, and bust these guys. But as you yeah. find in in real life, a lot of times things. Uh, tend to go sideways you know and also when you're dealing with informants you're often dealing with someone who might be working um they, they might be doing it under duress and they don't necessarily have an allegiance to the federal government they're doing it because they have to and so you have a lot of different variables to look at here and i believe it's entirely possible that this is something that went sideways that they intended say for example what if it was intended for the the truck to be stopped and, and the bombing prevented, you know, in the middle of the night, the FBI is out there and under surveillance at the Murr buildings under surveillance. And they pull this truck over and they arrest these guys and they have a, you know, a big a celebration. And then things for whatever reason go sideways and, and the truck shows up at a different time. They're not expecting it. They don't have the type of surveillance on them like they should. And things just are, you know, go horribly wrong. So I think that that's probably what happened here. Yeah, caller. Interesting. I, I, yeah, no, interesting. I, I appreciate it. Those are pretty much the questions I had. So um, I'll, I'll uh, listen back to this and check into those names. I mean, if you want to go into any of those names, I think it'd be helpful. But um, I appreciate you guys uh, doing this. Thanks a lot, Danny. Thanks, Richard. Cool. Thank thanks. you. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, yeah it, you get a lot. You know, people want to know who John Doe Two is, and let me tell you, I want to know too. He's the key to all this. And when I think about what would cause the FBI to lie like that, to cover up like that, to obstruct justice in the investigation, to hide videotape. It most certainly is not a neo-Nazi. No. They're not going to they're not going to do that for No, but you would think that an informant would not have got to that point where they're like, you know, running out of the of the truck moments before it's about to blow up. So you would right. think, but also think about this. At that time, cell phones were not prevalent. They were big, you know, bulky bag phones. So you may have a situation, for example, say this informant is with McVeigh and he's with him night and day on like April 18th, April 19th. And he, he thinks they're going to deliver this bomb in the middle of the night and the FBI is going to swoop out and pick him up. What if instead the, the plan gets changed and McVeigh knows or has a suspicion that this guy is an informant? So he is just watching him like a hawk, and the guy cannot get away. He can't get to a payphone without coming under suspicion. And so he just has to be quiet and hope that the guys who are there to arrest them are still there when they arrive. I can see a situation where he is isolated from handlers or he is isolated from his superiors, and the plan gets changed on them. Right. And that certainly, I think, it could have happened. And what, what was the extent of Timothy McVeigh's uh, military training? Him and, and he, Terry Nichols were both in the military? They were both in the military. They both went through basic training. Uh, Tim McVeigh was a much better soldier, though, than Terry Nichols was. He earned, like, a bronze star and a bunch of commendations. He was in the first Gulf War. And he uh, he was about to uh, try, he tried out for special forces. And when, at the time he tried out, he had an injury on one of his feet and he was not able to make it through the physical part of it due to this injury he had on his foot. And he was going to go back and try out again, but evidently just after washing out, he kind of gave up on it. Oh, okay. But so he wasn't, he, he wasn't super specialized in his, in his training. I just wonder in terms of this, you know, dealing dealing with other people in regard to this informant and all that. 
Um, so I, I wanted to because the Terrence Yankee thing is seems to be the oddest part of this of this whole thing. And I, I mean, what percentage do you put that this was an actual suicide? Zero. I, I put are it you zero, 0% or you're like, yeah, just straight yeah, zero? Yeah, I put, I put it at 0% and 100% murder based on the crime scene, based on the uh, the complete uh, severing of both of his wrists and his neck and the bullet wound in his head at the angle that it was at, and then finding dirt inside of the wounds on yeah. his arms. All of that indicates to me that he was, uh, he, he was tortured possibly and that he was uh, killed and that the body was moved to where it was found. I think for sure he was murdered. Yeah. Okay. One, one second, please. We've got another call here. Hello. Next call, low value mail. Who am I speaking with? Hi, Danny. It's Ryan from Miami, Florida. Ryan from Miami, Florida. How you doing, man? All right. You are on with Richard. Go ahead. Hi, Richard. How you doing? Um, I had a question for you. Sorry, you can probably tell I'm not from Miami. I'm visiting Miami right now. Um, have you ever seen the Apple TV series Slow Horses? I've not seen that. That's with uh, uh, Jeff. Uh, I can't remember his, his name. The guy from uh, Big Lebowski, I think. Jeff Bridges? Jeff Bridges? Uh, no, it's, it's a... It's a it's a British, it's a British uh, MI5 series um, okay. with uh, Gary Oldman in it. And um, apologies if anyone wants to watch it. I'm about to get some spoilers. But in the first series, it's... <laughs> Nobody's watching it. Give it away. What you're yeah, sorry. Um, uh, it sounds remarkably uh, similar to what you just described in the sense that effectively MI5 um, arrange a kind of false flag um, kidnapping of a, a British uh, Muslim team by what looks like a far-right group, and the far-right group is uh, organized by this ex-Royal Marine who is, in fact, an MI5 agent, and they go to execute him, but then one of the group within it realizes that they're being duped and that there is, in fact, a kind of MI5 spy in it. So they figure that out, they, they figure that out, they kill the MI5 spy and basically radicalize even further because they think that they've got nowhere else to run. And I wonder if there's potentially any sort of... Um, analogous scenario that's happened of what you've described does that sound you know anything that's plausible in your view oh absolutely there there's absolute parallels in what you just described and a lot of times uh, the programs like that you know a lot of times they're based on uh, historical scenarios based on actual history or it's they take a historical event and think about what if and certainly that sounds like a plausible possible type scenario because you're dealing with these radical groups you have intelligence agencies involved with them they do get involved in things like this these plots you know and and it's certainly possible that your target you know if it's a pretty savvy individual they might be able to to tell if someone is like a an undercover agent and so what would happen in that case well they probably would kill him or they probably would try to mm. outfox the guy hmm. yeah and, and then what happens later is in the series of effects the mi5 realize they're kind of they've been caught and they're trying to um uh, bury their uh bury their tracks by basically killing off anyone who might have known the slightest bit about it, even some of their own people within uh, within the group it's, yeah it's interesting too and then yeah, I I'll check that out. question if i may danny yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and uh, on on you, so you're kind of worried about working with the Libertarian Institute. Have you ever heard of um, the group called the uh, uh, the Free Cities Foundation? The groups that are looking to sort of build almost microstates or. Uh, I mean, the, we had Jeremy Kaufman. I had Jeremy Kaufman from the Free State Project. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. On I the show a uh, well. few months ago. I'm not familiar with the free cities. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Yeah, they've, they've got some interesting stuff. They're, they're kind of they're trying to. I think they're acting almost like um, not quite a trade association, but more like a sort of a uh, a, a community of like-minded people who want to found these sorts of uh, things up and down up and down the world. They've got one in um, for like Russian speakers out in um, sort of Eastern Europe. They've got one for they're trying to uh, move a lot of people to New Hampshire uh, to uh, found a place. Yeah, well, that was the free, America. yeah, um, the free state project. I think is they're trying to get everybody to move to New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. So the free cities one, um, I think, I think they must be working. Well, maybe not in partnership. They certainly, they certainly point people towards that one as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not super familiar with the free free cities project. Nah, no. But uh, I can check it out. Are you a member? Are you are you joining one of these? Things? Um, I, I'm. I want. To, they've got a conference every year in October. Um, out in Prague, so I'm looking to go um, either this year or the following because um, something I've got an interest in. But it's, no, it's nothing I'm a member of. But a few, I have a few friends who worked in similar uh, organizations. You know, um, uh, what was his name? Peter Thiel's uh, Praxis thing. Yeah. Um, it was a similar sort of uh, yeah, similar sort of venture. I've, I've, I've known people who worked in things like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I haven't heard of it, but I'll I'll check it out and uh, see what's up. And, uh, and Danny, I'm looking forward. Uh, to, I'm look, uh, slow sorry? horses. The TV show you mentioned was Slow, Slow Horses. Slow Horses. Yeah, yeah, Slow. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, Slow Horses. And uh, Danny, I look forward to seeing you on uh, Saturday. I'm Sa- flying from Miami back to London, and I'll see you there. Cool. I'll see you in London. Say what's up. Come say what's up after the show. Cheers. cheers. See you. All right. Thank you. Okay. Uh, there's uh, we got a super chat. Sam Adams seventy three. Merrick Garland oversaw OKC Fed prosecutions. Lucky for him. Yes, indeed, he did. He uh, was the basically the point of contact for the prosecution, and uh, I actually actually requested from the Clinton Library the Secret Service White House visitors log. Really? Looking- can we actually? Sorry, can we put it? We got another call. Let's put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it. Hello, thanks for calling. Low value mail. Who am I speaking with? Hi, it's Kevin from Florida. Kevin from Florida. How you doing? One moment, please. And you are on with Richard. Go ahead, Kevin from Florida. Awesome. Love this show, Danny. Richard, big fan of your work. I was introduced to you on the Scott Horton show. I just want to say thanks for all the work you do, man. Cool. Thank you, man. Yeah. Um, so two points I have that I'd just like to hear you expand on in a quick third I guess, follow-up question. One is foreknowledge. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking of like the ATF not being there that day. And I know you talked about that deputy director and uh, like him coming up the day before, checking into a hotel, I think I heard you talk about. Yep, yep. Um, And then the second thing is uh, intelligence agency involvement. And I'm thinking about particularly what I've heard you talk about with the Andre Strassmeyer character. And the like CIA pilot dude who got him out of the country shortly thereafter and what's up with that. Yep. Yep. So, um, just expand on that for me. And then my third thing is, do you think we'll ever see any justice from this? Like, I know you have the, uh, Trinidad case going on and are we ever going to see any sort of justice on this? And if not, like, what are the implications of that? What are your thoughts on, the FBI, the three-letter agencies in general, like, 
do you subscribe, subscribe to the theory that these agencies should probably be dissolved, abandoned? Um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you. And so I'll answer the, your last question first. And I don't think that we're ever going to see justice on this. And I think what it would take even would be something like the surveillance tape videos to be leaked by one of these FBI agents who obtained a copy of them. And those tapes show you have McVeigh and John Doe, too. It would take something like that to even cause them to change their position or to even make a kind of uh, limited modified hangout that is to say that you know yeah there was more to it it would take something like that for them to admit being wrong so i just don't think we're going to get any justice there and i do think that for example the fbi should be abolished and law enforcement should be handled by your county sheriff's office and not a federal agency um as far as some of the other things you mentioned uh Definitely, there's a lot there, a lot to unpack. You mentioned uh, foreknowledge. That's very interesting. As in studying this case, I found examples of people who seem to know about the bombing before it happened. And unquestioningly, in every case of foreknowledge, it was one of two things. Either it was a neo-Nazi figure, and there are like about four of them who talked about talked about the bombing before it happened. It was either a neo-Nazi or two, it was someone working for or representing a government agency, specifically the ATF and the FBI. And you're absolutely correct. There were no ATF agents at work on April 19th, 1995. None of uh, the ATF's personnel were injured in the bombing. In fact, they came out later and made up a story about people being in the Murrah building and getting injured in an elevator, which was proven false by the elevator engineer. So sorry, just uh, so the ATF yeah. had one of their their Oklahoma office was in the Murrah building. That's right. Okay, and there was nobody there that day. No one was there that day. In fact, the ATF agents they were at the scene of the bombing after it happened. And one of the uh, guy ran up to them and this guy, his wife worked in the Murrah building. She worked in the credit union and they knew local ATF agents. And this, uh, this guy said, his name's Bruce Shaw. He said, Hey, my wife was in the building. I'm trying to find her. Can you get me in touch with some of the local ATF agents? They know me. And this ATF guy said, he gets on his, uh, walkie-talkie and he comes back he says i'm sorry you know i can't do that that none of them i can't reach them um they're in a meeting none of them were there today and he, he how, said, how many what? employees is this we're talking at least 20 there were so at least 20 employees agents. on what, what day of the week was april 19th 1995 on a, a, a monday i think so a monday a monday, monday in april was... every member of the atf stayed not home. at work right not at work and more than that you have their own agents admitting to multiple witnesses that they were not there that day. And he said they they didn't come in today. They were tipped by their pagers not to come in to work. So they were paged that morning and told to stay home. Do we know who paged them? We don't know. We think they're talking about it's a page that would have come from the office. It would have a page come from, you know, if you, if this person's looking at their pager, they know that that's work. Right. So we and don't that know, just said though, stay what, and they all just said it just said stay home today. You got the day off. They were told basically not to come in. Not that. And as far as what we know about that's that, that's certainly it, odd. It, it certainly is. And Dateline uh, or that is 2020. 
It's a show kind of like 60 Minutes or mm -hmm. Dateline. Yeah. They did a special on this in 1996 called The Families Want to Know. And it had interviews with some of the victims. And it had an interview with this guy, Bruce Shaw. And in the interview on national news, he said that, that when he talked to the ATF that day, we talked to a local ATF agent at the bomb scene when he was looking for his wife. He was told that they were told not to come in to work today. And he was asking, why were they not there? What did they know? And that's why it was called The Families Want to Know. And people can find that on YouTube. You can find it on my YouTube channel. I, I uploaded the whole thing. And it's got that and a whole bunch more that causes one to think, well, they had to have some type of foreknowledge. Why else would they, you know, not be at work that day? That's pretty specific, though, because you assume 20 people at an office working for the federal government, like they can't just keep doing that until it happens. Right. Like they're That's not right. like there weren't just days where they're like very oh, they, specific down to the day, down know. to the day. It's not like they're like, oh, they tell us all the time and they're just they don't know which day it's going to be. But they have, <laughs> you know, every Monday they tell us to not come into work and because they know it's going to be right. a Monday or something. That's uh, and so multiple members of uh, white nationalists or whatever, neo-Nazis, they also are on record as having. Absolutely. You know, There's just one guy, Chevy Kehoe. He was a straight up killer. He murdered people. He's in jail now and uh, prison for life or a triple homicide. Well, on the morning of April 19th, 1995, he was staying at the Shadows Motel in RV Park up up in Portland and uh, up in Oregon. And he goes in and it's like 7.30 in the morning, you know, Pacific time. And he, he goes into the office and he says he wants to watch TV. He's got an RV out there and he doesn't have a television. So he, he says, in the, he goes into the office and he wants to watch TV. He just wants to watch CNN. So the, the boss uh, there, he puts it on CNN. He says about 10, 15 minutes go by, you know, rolls around to 9.05 a.m. shortly thereafter, uh, central time, which would be like, uh, be like seven. So he must have been in there at like 6.30 a.m. Sure. You know, seven o'clock rolls around, 7.05 now, all of a sudden, we got the news. Uh, we've got the broadcast on CNN about the bombing. And he says, this guy, Chevy, he goes, that, you know, he starts hooting and hollering, saying, I knew it. I knew it. You know, and and he seemed to be knowing that there was going to be a bombing. Why else is he there uh, in there at seven o'clock in the morning saying he wants to watch the news? That doesn't make any sense. No. And how did he know, you know, only 15, 20 minutes goes by and there's the bombing and he's hooting and hollering about it. And he's just one. That's Chevy Kehoe. They're more more direct examples of someone talking about there being, you know, Louis Beam. Louis Beam was a national leader in the white uh, separatist underground, and he he told someone that they, um, that that the guys have a plan in the works. He says we're going to hit them. We're going to hit them. We're going to hit a federal building, and they said they've got some kid out there who's going to do it. And this was just weeks before the bombing. And he's got it down, you know, too. He's talking about bombing. He's talking about a federal building. And he's talking about, you know, a young guy, Tim McVeigh. You might call him a kid if you're in your 40s or 50s, you know, sure. referring to someone his age. And so, yeah. And, and did they, they formally, like, take two. credit for it, similar to how, uh, you know, like, Al-Qaeda or something, if they, they do, like, a terrorist attack, they'll they'll take credit for it? Like, were these groups taking credit? You think you would, but none of the, the white nationalist organizations, none of them took any type of formal credit for it. As close as you got to that is a group called White Aryan Resistance, 
which was ran by a guy named Dennis Mahon. And Dennis Mahon would come out and he would talk all the time about how he knew Tim McVeigh. As, as late as at 2004 at a thing called Arian Fest in Phoenix, he's on stage and he's talking about how he knew Tim McVeigh and that he and he and Tim McVeigh had met, met each other, you know, and he would talk about how Tim McVeigh was a hero and that he needs a thousand more soldiers just like him. So that's about as close as you got or people talking about it. I think others within the movement knew that that was too hot of a subject. You can't run your lips about that because look what happened to him. You know, McVeigh was you know sentenced to, to death, to prison. It's just not something you could loosely talk about. I bet amongst one another, I'm sure that they knew. I'm sure that when it was just private, you know, they, they knew the, the players and the people who had a hand in it. And have they been involved in any sort of terrorist activities uh, since then, like on any sort of scale like that? About the only things, uh, you know, these this group, uh, Adam Waffen, that was busted by the FBI just a couple of years ago. They had evidently some type of terrorist plans in the works, and they were busted, I want to say, in like 2020. In fact, one of those guys had a framed photo of Tim McVeigh on his wall. Yeah, I vaguely remember and, this. Yeah, and that goes to show how you know, unstable these people are. If you've got a picture of a terrorist hanging on your wall, that's just nutty, you know? And so we haven't seen any major um, acts of terrorism since that time by these kinds of people, but I believe that the possibility is always there. Uh, yeah, it's Tim odd McVeigh, just they have this just one instance, you know? Well, if you look at it, though, actually on ago. April April 19th, 1985, Okay. Uh, 10 years to the 10 years at, uh, before the bombing, um, there was a group called the Covenant Sword and the Arm of the Lord. And this was a far right white supremacist group. They were raided by the FBI on April 19, 1985, 10 years before. And the FBI seized hundreds of firearms and uh, went and took, uh, raided their compound, took them into custody. Well, that very group, the CSA, had planned to bomb the Murrah building. They actually wanted to bomb the Murrah building, and it was a member of that group named Richard Wayne Snell, who was in prison for murder on April 19, 1995. And he, too, watched it on his television screen and started hooting and hollering and celebrating. And he was talking before the bombing news was broadcast, saying how on the day of his death, he was executed April 19th, 1995. He said on the day of his death, there was going to be retribution and that uh, hell will come on that. Sorry, day. he was executed on April 19th, 1995. He was. He was executed April 19th, 1995, and he predicted that on the day he was going to be executed, there would be a terrorist bombing. And prison official Alan Abels, who ran the correction what? system in, in his state, was quoted in the newspaper saying that Richard Snell was saying that there was going to be a bombing or an act of terrorism the day that he was executed. And some people, including that FBI agent I mentioned, Danny Colson, think that there is a connection there. And obviously there is that connection, the ideology. The ideology that this guy Snell had is the same ideology that Tim McVeigh had. And they knew the same people. And this guy, Louis Beam, that I mentioned, who expressed foreknowledge, he was visiting Richard Snell in prison up until the day of his death. So how could Snell find out about this bombing? Easy. Louis Beam could tell him. Louis Beam's visiting him. His wife is visiting him. His wife's plugged into the white supremacist network. She could have heard it from Beam or any number of other people. And word travels quick in that movement. So I think that Richard Wayne Snell most certainly heard about some of these plans from the very person who was there talking about it. Uh, Louis Beam saying how, you know, that they've got some kid who's going to do something. He's the one who obviously told Snell about it for Snell to be able to say that there was going to be an attack on the day of his death. 
Okay. Uh, caller, is that your smoke alarm chirping? Oh, I'm sorry. I can mute my, my mic. I don't... I don't know what it is. I think you just need to replace the batteries. Uh, they're just there's just a battery issue in your smoke alarm. So okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Just you don't have to do it now. Just at some point in the next like, couple of years, if you want to replace it, uh, that'd be a good idea. You have any other uh, questions? Uh, no, just the CIA potential involvement, the Strassmeyer deal, and then one more quick one. I'll I'll take it off air. The um, I can't remember her name, but the woman who was like restricted from testifying carol i can't remember her name yes yes so just strassmeyer and her if you can expand on that a little bit and again thank you guys very much love the show yeah thanks for calling thank you yeah so there was a white supremacist compound in oklahoma called elohim city and this is a community where all the white supremacist people they go and they visit there it's like a compound they have like perimeter security all of the um very the people with the violent rhetoric, they all go there. That guy, Dennis Mahon, who I said, you know, bragged about having known McVeigh. He had a trailer at Elohim City. Well, at Elohim City, they had what's called a chief of security. Their chief of security, their guy who's in charge of all the weapons and making sure everybody has assault rifles and everything and making sure that he has perimeter security, was a guy named Andy Strassmeyer. Andy Strassmeyer was from Germany. He was in the Bundeswehr in the German army. And he was trained in intelligence in the German army. And he also was a multilingual. He spoke English, German, and Hebrew. And I'm sure that the neo-Nazi people at the compound he was staying at did not know that he spoke Hebrew. Was he Jewish? Or that he had he was not. Uh, but he had cross-trained with the IDF. He had actually well, he won't say it's training. He said he visited Israel three or four times and he went on patrol on the Green Line with the IDF. And uh, he uh, I think he, he underwent cross training there through the German army. They had a close relationship with the IDF and with with this, which is essentially what and just so, like dual training kind of something along those lines. Exactly. Where you have like a training op- exercise where you have a friendly country they're coming over and cross training. OK. And so Andy Strassmeyer, after that, uh, comes over to the United States. And what does he do? He ends up going immediately to probably the hottest place in the country for the FBI, which was Elohim City, which was this white supremacist compound made up of former uh, and current terrorists, basically. And he he, uh, is immediately trusted because he's a guy with a German accent and he's talking like a Nazi. So they immediately trust him, put him in a position of of uh, authority and he is there and he's making sure everyone's got, you know, assault rifles, things like this. None of these people know about his, his, uh, the fact that, you know, he was over in Israel. They also don't know that, you know, all the, the first people he meets when he comes to the United States, both of them are intelligence assets. He stays with a guy named Vincent Petrusky, who was a, uh, basically CIA involved in the Phoenix program in Vietnam. He has a buddy over here named Dave Holloway, who was also a CIA figure. He was a pilot uh, for the CIA. So why is it that this guy Strassmere, everybody he knows in the United States, is some kind of intelligence figure? And why is it that this guy who speaks Hebrew is popping up at a neo-Nazi compound? Well, yeah. obviously, it looks like he, he he's undercover, right? He's obviously undercover. And that's what people think, is that he was some type of in federal... Um, provocateur. And in fact, Danny Colson was asked about this. He went on Jack Murphy's podcast, The Team House, and he was asked on there about Andy Strassmeyer. And Danny Colson said, that's a very good question. He says, now some people believe this. I'm not saying this is what I believe, but some people believe this. He said, what if it, you know, Andy Strassmeyer was sent here as an agent? 
and then he put McVeigh up to it. What then? And some people thought, you know, had the suspicion that Andy Strassmeyer was John Doe too. Now, I don't personally believe that, but I do. Is there any resemblance? Have you seen a photo of Andy Strassmeyer? Oh yeah, I've seen photos of him. There was no resemblance. This guy John Doe too was big, muscular. You think like someone who looks like The Rock, really wide and muscular and big. Um, that's not Andy Strassmeyer. Um, Andy was skinny and tall. Yeah. And uh, people would remember, say, this guy had a German accent. You know, sure. there were people who heard John Doe too speak, and nobody said anything like that. Yeah, I guess the white supremacy angle makes a lot of sense in certain contexts, but I guess just. There's, there's no demands. There's no, they're not taking responsibility for it. Like it's kind of this covert. Right. Well, uh, he had like a false Like if you're a terrorist, ideal. the whole point is to create terror. And they're like, right. Even... You, you'd want to uh, own it. You'd want to be, you'd probably yeah. be proud of it. Something like that. Of course. Right. And right. Now, what if you have though, a group of provocateurs who are working for federal agencies or intelligence agencies who pushed this thing and made it go much bigger like you think something attended. closer to the Whitmer situation where exactly. they exactly found a bunch like of just city. kind of yes. knuckleheads essentially and who are just very easily influenced. I mean, it's happened a lot, a number of times with, with the Islamic whatever where they. Oh, sure it has. Dozens of times where they find a, a Muslim guy and some, they push. Or some kid and they and just and, like, yeah, yeah, they literally like just get him to come like do something crazy. So you think that's the potential is that maybe. Uh, and I then think, and then I guess to what end though? Yes. Why? I guess a, a right. lot of the stuff always comes back to the why. Well, the same thing, too, with Whitmer. You ask, well, why? Why would they do that? And I think the reasons are political. They want to make these people who are anti, you know, anti-Democrat or opposed to liberal policies look like they're some type of neo-Nazi terrorist like or dangerous. Fascist, like basically just the most dangerous yeah. ideology that exists. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, OK, we got another call. Uh, one moment, please. Hello, thanks for calling Low Value Mail. Who am I speaking with? Danny, it's Sean from Pittsburgh. Sean from Pittsburgh. One moment, please. Sean from Pittsburgh. All right, Sean, you're on uh, with Richard. Go ahead, please. Hey, Rich. I'm glad to hear you on the podcast tonight. I think everything's great here. Uh, I got one question here for you. All right. So, uh, I don't even know. When Yankee went in there and he said, hey, something is amiss, and he found himself dead, obviously, there's something going on there, but it got blocked out of the media. Nobody's reporting on it. It you get labeled a conspiracy theorist if you even ask a single question about this dude's death. Why? I mean, it seems question. to be the like, oddest. Like, what is it? I agree with you too, but like, it's the oddest part of the whole thing because everything else is really not that crazy. It's kind of people trying to cover their own asses. I mean, it is weird that the white supremacists don't want to take credit for it, but maybe like we just said, it could be like a, uh, you know, a Michigan Whitmer situation where the government put it on. We still don't know why, but this one is the weird one where I agree with you. I don't, I don't really get it. Right. So I kind of have an idea. Now, one thing to note though, is that um, CNN actually did recently do a piece on Terry Yiki and it pretty much argued that he was murdered and it presented the case. When, when was, was this? Shocking. 
This was in uh, 2021, I think, or 2020. It is odd when CNN like does stuff like that, and you go, oh, yeah, you right. used to like do shit like this before yeah. like Trump broke their brain and stuff. They like it. It blew me away. It interviewed his family members. It was fair. It was even handed. It was talking about you know this hero cop you know who was murdered. So that kind of blew me away. As far as the why, though, um, one thing to note is that when I was tracing down the surveillance tape evidence and looking at the FBI documents on that, we have the FBI 192 reports, which are basically like chain of custody reports to show when the FBI takes custody of evidence, they generated a 192 report. And I had from these reports, I could tell um, how many surveillance tapes they had and where they got the tapes from. And what I noted is that one of those tapes that came from the Regency Towers, which would have had a direct view of the front of the Murrah building, came from the uh, from the uh, Oklahoma City Police, or was given to the Oklahoma City Police Department. And the police were in the custody of it before the FBI got it. And this made me think, well, what would, what would Terry Yeeke have done? Would he have gone into the evidence locker and made a copy of this tape if he's saying that we're being lied to about this and he's doing an investigation. You know, he did, in fact, have two VCRs at one point. He had his own VCR. He borrowed his ex-wife's VCR, which you have to have two VCRs if you want to make a copy of one tape to the other. Like back and in so the I'm 90s, like thinking, yeah, you had to like daisy That's right. Chain and I'm thinking, well, why is he doing that? Why, why does he want somebody else's VCR? He's obviously making copies of tapes. He's uh, in the police department. What if, he, what if he got access to that surveillance tape? And what if that surveillance tape did show Tim McVeigh and John Doe, too, and showed, you know, the building being bombed. Well, that certainly would be rather explosive. And what if you could identify John Doe, too, from that surveillance tape? Could that possibly have put his life mm -hmm. in danger? I mean, it's certainly possible if they're going to, as far as they'll go to even say that he doesn't exist, would he, you know, would someone murder for him? It's hard to say, but I think the key. Th well, let me uh, ask you this then: the, mm -hmm. that John Doe too that we haven't really identified yet. You do you think he is an FBI asset? Do you think he's directly involved with this whole situation? I think that the person who was John Doe too was directly involved with the plot. He was observed by key witnesses with Tim McVeigh at sir on certain dates. On the date the bomb truck was picked up, he was with Tim McVeigh in the days prior to the Oklahoma City bombing at various locations. If you're a person, it's easy enough to say that, okay, just being a friend of Tim McVeigh's doesn't make you a co-conspirator. And I think that that's largely right. going to be the truth. But on the other hand, if you're with him when picking up the rider truck, you're there with him on the day of the scene of the crime, you're getting out of the truck with him, you're more than just a friend. Yeah. So oh, think, yeah. That seems like that would be directly implicated. I mean, regardless Absolutely. of if you're a friend or not, they have to find you and talk to you. Like right. whatever, whatever you know, you how you fit into this, they have you to at get least their side of the story. Yeah, you got to get. You got to be like, what, what was going on there? You know, what were you doing? Mm -hmm. At the very minimum, yeah, because so. well, we don't I even to... have that. We don't even know who he is. The FBI goes so far as saying the man doesn't exist. When we, when I, I've read the accounts of the witnesses, I've read the grand jury transcripts, I've read the 302 reports, and if you're telling me this person doesn't exist, you're full of it. You're just you're you're, you're trying to gaslight me by saying that, you know. And I know then there's a conspiracy there if that's what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead, caller. What was your question? No, I, I was going to say, I completely agree with, with Rich here. But um, so the other question, the um, the movie Bowling for Columbine. Yeah. Uh, there, I believe it's one of the Nichols guys. 
Yes, James they Nichols. Al- they allowed James Nichols. Yes, I'm sorry. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, they allowed that interview to go out with him being well. They imp- they imply that he's a gun nut and he's sleeping with a revolver under his pillow, and he cocks it to his head allegedly with uh, yeah. with the fat man there. I don't know. I would just like to know what your opinion is on him as a character from the whole situation, because I don't really think he's involved. I think he's just a patsy. I could yeah, be J- wrong, but I just want to know what your opinion is on that. And fellas, I'm going to let, I'm going to get off, off the line. Thank you Appreciate very much it. for taking my call. Thank you for calling later guys. Thank you. Yeah. That was a really funny scene. If anybody wants to go watch bowling for Columbine, that scene is worth the price of admission. It's really you, I've seen and, the movie, not in a long time. Can you refresh my memory? Yeah, yeah. James Nichols is the brother of Terry Nichols, and so he's Terry Nichols' brother. He was a personal friend of Tim McVeigh's as well. He knew him. Terry, uh, that is to say, Tim McVeigh put James Nichols' address on his driver's license for his farm in Decker, Michigan. So he knew this guy very well. He'd been to his farm many times. He was friends with him. And as your caller said there, he's absolutely right. James Nichols did not have anything to do with the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, As a character, he is just He's hilarious. If you imagine a, a person who is like um, Dale from King of the Hill, yeah, that's pretty much how this guy was. He, he really was kind of a nut. And that's why the scene in Bowling for Columbine is hilarious. And one of the things in Bowling for Columbine, James Nichols says, is he looks at the camera and he says, who blow or he said, who blowed up the Murrah building or who blowed it up? It was just the dumbest, most ignorant sounding thing. And it was funny, too, because he's it's his buddy who did it. And here he is acting like he doesn't know who did it and suggesting that it was the government. Um, yeah. So he, he's just a real character. Very strange. Uh, I think they're saying weird. in the chat now he is a she now. No, no, no not no, not James a... Nichols. That's oh. you're thinking of. They're thinking of uh, Peter, Peter Langan. Oh, OK. All right. We got another uh, caller. One moment, please. Hello. Thanks for calling Low Value Mail. Who am I speaking with? Oh, I'm just calling from the chat. Yo, hey. what's up, Slav? How you doing, man? Uh, All right, you're um, on. With, you're on so, with Richard. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I had uh, two questions. One was uh, regarding the Whitewater affair. You're familiar with that, right? Yeah. Can you tell people what that is uh, so, yeah, for those so, that don't know? Uh, it was yeah, three hundred thousand dollars because like uh, the Clintons. They got invested into like a land development deal and it failed. And then Clinton wanted like an illegal loan to pay off one of his yep. partners. This is in Arkansas. Yep. Okay. So uh, you guys brought up that like there's always talk about oh this was like a perfect opportunity to like um, to like uh, for this like the whole spiel about domestic terrorism because. What I haven't uh, heard you mention is the uh, Operation PatCon. Right. So during like, the, yeah, during like, you know, the 60s and the 70s is Operation Cointelpro. Right. Which was to target and subvert the civil rights movements and as well as black nationalist movements and hype up their violence to, you know, discredit them amongst the public. And then after that, so that was like internal FBI work. And then there was the end of the Cold War, and then there was the collapse of the Soviet Union, but the federal government and the FBI, they still needed to justify their budget. So 
they started Operation PACCON, which is short for Patriotic Concern. And this is when they started going into like white nationalist, white separatist, and yep. Christian separatist movements. And it always, it, uh, the most notable ones are Ruby Ridge. Yep. And, uh, and you know, rest in peace all the people, you know, at the Branch Davidian in Waco. But there was, at they, that, federal government was openly bragging about how they made up almost 60 to 70 percent of like large um, white separatist movements and groups they said that like yeah 60 percent of them are either actual federal agents or federal informants that's probably true yeah you're absolutely yeah. right on right on the money with PatCon when they shut down COINTELPRO, and which was in the '60s and '70s. Um, if you were to re-engage that in the late '80s or the early '90s, PatCon looks exactly like what that would look like. And this was basically short FBI shorthand for Patriot Conspiracy PatCon. And what they were doing was infiltrating right-wing affiliated organizations. And in some cases, impersonating and creating their own fr uh, fake front groups, all of it right out of the COINTELPRO playbook. And then they were inciting to violence these people or creating and fomenting plots so that they could then bust them, just like you see, like with the Whitmer plot. That's a perfect example of something the FBI would have done during PatCon. And we have documents from PatCon. We don't have all of them. We just have some of them. And we have an FBI agent, or that is to say not an FBI agent, but um, an undercover guy who is an co independent contractor who worked for the FBI. And his job was to go undercover in these groups. His name is John Matthews. And he said he was active in PatCon all the way up through 1998. And so we know that it ran for at least eight years, at least seven or eight years. And people um, often uh, who are educated on this subject and know a lot about it do wonder whether or not the Oklahoma City bombing was in some ways tied to a PATCON operation. I think that's certainly possible. You're looking at something that was called a major case undercover um, investigation, a group, group one major case undercover operation. And that's something that requires funding, and it's something that requires oversight from the FBI's undercover review committee. Danny Colson is on that committee, and he would have known about it if there were some type of operation or if there were some type of um, undercover deal well, going well, on. Well, wasn't, wasn't the Turner Diaries like one of the key major things covered by the news and Absolutely. by the FBI saying like, it was. And, yeah. So, like, how does this not, like, stink of, you know, PACCON activities? Well, it certainly does. And that's what causes people, I think, to suspect that it, that it was a PACCON operation because it fits so nicely. You know, it's just something that we need more evidence on, I believe. I believe we need more information. But Is, is that something they're city... going for? Like, with this, this Patriot, like, is that ideal scenario as they make them go do this crazy shit exactly like the, if you look at the whitmer kidnapping plot and in that plot they also wanted to um, plan to assassinate uh, a, a governor of another state and so here you have fbi undercover operators and informants who are inciting a uh, a plot to kidnap and kill a governor and assassinate another governor that's ridiculous it's a, that's just beyond outrageous wasn't it 12 or 14? Yeah, it was something like, like 12 or 4, 12 to 14 other states were involved. I know that much. No, 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 I, no, I no. It was 
12, like 14 people involved in the operation, but only two were not federal agents. That could be. Yeah. There's actually a guy who I've been meaning to message him who was involved. He was one of the guys who I think he was exonerated in the Whitmer thing, and he's been doing, mm-hmm. uh, going on podcasts. I'm actually going to try and have him on. I can't remember what his name is, though. Yeah, uh, prob- probably Brandon Caserta. And yeah, then, that's who it is, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then Christina Urso, who's doing a documentary, Kidnap and Kill, she's done a lot of great uh, investigation on this. And you're right, I think that she did uncover something like a dozen you know, federal informants. If you look at the plot, most of the people who are planning the operation were these FBI undercovers. The vast majority of them were. So you have a situation whereby they're creating and fomenting the terror plot. Yeah, because again, this yeah, isn't like yeah, this. It, it, I, I know we're meant to think that you know white white nationalism is like the the most dangerous thing. Blah blah blah. But but like, show me what they've really done, right? Well, well exactly. You're like, well, you you yeah. talk about obviously. I guess it would be this the Oklahoma right. City bombing. As far well, as I in my lifetime, that's kind of like the main one. I, I mean, here's the thing. What is it like? There's always the memes and people calling stuff out on the internet. Whenever there's like a some sort of large white party nazi type demonstration and everyone's like why are they covering their faces exactly their tattoos? like every time i see that stuff i do want to go there in person and go up to them and be like where's your ink where's your four like you know what are the 14 words why don't right. you guys have literature and pamphlets like back in the 90s legit nazi groups who were like like there are like legit Nazi groups, not like they Nazi had literature. Like, they they would white, know the fourteen yeah. words. Yeah, yeah, they had. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. Also, it's Patriot Front. These guys are feds. Yeah, and then you could tell them like, hey, why don't want call them? Why don't you call them uh, that one word? You know, I'm not saying that. I I'll ask them to say, why don't you say, you know, the word. Uh, speaking about In other words, you, you want them people. to I'm prove say, that they're not feds, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, their yeah, allegiance and stuff. And yeah, no, I just it's like really, this is like feds are allowed to do this, but I get like I get fired from my job. If, <laughs> I, <man. laughs> I get fired from the but, Chuck E. Cheese for just using my <laughs> First Amendment. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it, with the uh, with the legit. Uh, racist groups, they're the ones that I do know exist that are legit and not feds is white separatist movements. Like, like white people who are like, we don't want to live in cities. We don't want to live amongst people who are not either don't look like us or don't like, are not, you know, God fearing Christians. And they just move out into the farthest parts of the backwoods, like, especially like East Texas. And they yeah. just make it known like, Hey, we like don't come around here. Like turn back. Like you, you're lost, boy. You better turn around. Like don't get caught when the sun goes down. Type of sure. ordeal. Yeah, I mean, again, it just it all comes down to, you know, you know, like uh, it, it seems possible that that uh, Timothy McVeigh was maybe had some ideas about this stuff and then was steered into it and then. I there's still all these weird things though. like the ATF thing. I I had not heard mm-hmm. that. They the fact that they're all just and then there's no investigation into why weren't they all like who gave them that order? Why did that's right? How often does something like that happen where you tell every single one of them at their office to just stay home? Likely, likely never. Right. right? And why is there no investigation into that? 
Right. And why do they then come out even and, and lie and make up a story and say that we were there in the office? In fact, two of our agents are heroes and they were in an elevator that plunged four stories and they they, you know, broke out of the elevator and, you know, karate chopped their way through rubble while while saving, you know, innocent victims. And well, that was investigated and that was proven to be made up. It was proven wholly fabricated. Yeah, yeah just like. Just like Flight 93, let's roll. That was exactly. All they I create. Mean, they tried to create something just like that. Yeah, and then are you, you're not a you're not a, like an explosive damage expert, are you? Because no, I'm not. not but, no. But but when I see the photos, I'm like, dude, a rider truck filled because I know when they first reported the truck being filled with it first was reported it was filled with barrels of the uh, ammonia phosphate and. Nitrate. Everything else that was used for the explosive. And then people started to do the, the like deduce the math and analysis on that. And they're like, yeah, that wouldn't be enough. And then the FBI updated again saying they went from like 2,000 to, to 4,000 to 5,000 to finally 7,000 pounds when McVeigh's book came out. That bomb kept inflating in size every two weeks. Every month or so, the size of it increased in the news. There's no way to just find the actual transactions for. Yes, they could do that. The interesting part there is what they they found a receipt that showed 2000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer was purchased. But that was one purchase of several. Right. He made mm -hmm. several purchases so he wouldn't be buying a whole bunch at once. What happened is the FBI got their hands on this receipt that said 2000 pounds was purchased. And then the FBI's so-called explosive expert comes out and says, oh, this was a 2000 pound bomb. And how did he's asked, how does he know that? Well, that's what the receipt said. No, you're supposed to do forensic evidence and forensic investigating and determine using mathematics and determine by looking at the, the variables at play in the situation and using the scientific method to determine how big this bomb was rather than just fabricating a number based on what you know from one receipt. And, and what have bomb and experts said, uh, said regarding it? Oh, the, the, rear, the rear axle, for instance, if the bomb was to come from the truck itself and not from anything embedded in the building, the axle would have been blown dead, dead like downwards into the concrete and pavement, except mm -hmm. it was found like blasted 200 yards. A couple blocks away, away yeah. Yeah. And, then, and now does that uh, insinuate that some, uh, you know, lettered agency essentially rigged up that building and some blue. people it do think like that the cavity the cat like i'm not i'm not a to what end though I, I guess i always ask because i understand some of the you know people say w mass shootings and they go okay well like if, when people go this is like a false flag mass shooting you go well the reason is because they're trying to strip people of their rights to have guns you go okay i get that i don't i still don't really understand what was meant to be uh achieved here unless there maybe was something that we just don't know or just never I, materialized I or what I mean, I also think that uh, how people say um, McVeigh was a patsy or he, people were saying that, like, oh, he was truly motivated. What I also think is I think he became, like, incredibly retarded, mind my language. But, yeah, retarded because the first things that, like, are mentions of him to the, like, masses in the media after the bombing and OKC was, yeah, he was spotted uh, handing out literature and stickers and books at the siege of Waco. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and it's like, dude, this is a massive federal operation. They're 
they're they see who goes in and out there's taking pictures of everyone's face and exactly what do you so what do you why are you doing this right so it's like then it's like you know that they know that you were there they know that you have anti-government sentiments why do you why did you think what did you think was going to happen when some other guy just approached you with the idea of hey you don't like the federal government let's attack them i mean that's like never going to work in life if you don't like them just try and separate yourself from them yeah just just go as far in the woods possible i mean easier said than done i guess yeah and a lot of people do suggest and they think that maybe the the bombing uh was some type of explosives in the building i know that when terry when terry yiki's sister for example was interviewed for that cnn piece that came out just a year or two ago um she said that terry had seen evidence that the building exploded from inward out rather than something on the outside going in so she's saying basically like it wasn't a truck bomb it was explosive something that caused it to blow up from the inside out she said that terry had seen evidence of that now i had not heard that before i thought that was really interesting and it made me wonder again about the surveillance tapes what if he saw those tapes and what would it show um would it show a building imploding like you see when a building implodes would it show something that very obviously was not the result of solely a truck bomb you know there are a lot of questions and usually with the explosives part people look at the blast damage and you find there's one there was one column of the building that was located directly parallel to the truck very close in other words to the truck and that column was left totally standing. Meanwhile, other columns that are farther away were completely vaporized. And so people tend to say, how come there was not a consistent blast radius here, not a consistent bomb pattern where things that are close to the explosion are vaporized and things further away have less magnitude put upon them? And so I can understand that argument. Yeah, and then uh, the explosion inconsistencies as well whereas uh whatever newspaper that they had in town for okc i forgot which one they had to like redact and remove and completely like scrub from their uh printed records that during the rescue operations they were called back and this is they had terrence there at the same time they had to be called back like three or four times because there were about three bomb scares Three bomb scares that day while they were doing rescue operations. They had they stopped three in Oklahoma times. City. Yeah, in Oklahoma City during the rescue operations while they were rescuing people, there were three bomb scares. This is all recorded. It's in the documents. There were three of them that day where basically it was said that they found residue of or, or component or a piece of explosives in the rubble. And they had to evacuate people. Get get the rescue personnel out of the way until it was safe and so we have actual video footage from cnn and other networks of them talking about a bomb scare and that the rescue personnel are being backed off because they found explosives 
And then we never hear anything afterward about what that was about. And of course, the, the conspiracy folks take this and say that, well, obviously there were explosives in the building and look, they, they, they're undetonated. If you look at the building, it did not completely collapse. Only two thirds of it did. So there were unexploded ordnance in the rubble. And that was found on the columns, plastic explosives, timer, that kind of thing. And that's what people argue. And certainly that's possible. I'm not going to discount it because of the, the way that the blast radius was not symmetrical. That's very odd me but yeah. also i've got to recognize my own limitations i'm not an explosives expert so i couldn't say that with any certainty but i definitely think it's unusual yeah but sure like there couldn't uh, have just uh, been the goal to take the building just down because they wanted to get rid of the build, like similar to uh well, uh, well what's know, the rundown world trade for center 1993 1993 world trade center like what's the quick rundown on that Did yeah that i, get I away? don't know much about that rack well, they what? They tried to blow up uh, in the parking garage, right? Or the yeah, yeah. Islamic, I guess, fundamentalists. Supposedly, the official story is Ramzi Youssef assisted them in building a truck bomb, and it was put under the World Trade Center, and it blew up and hurt something like a dozen or more people, killed a couple people. Um, but uh, you know, as far as what the the true story is, or what really happened, or anything. I just don't know much about that when it comes to the first World Trade Center attack. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, caller. I'm gonna. I can take another call, but have a good one. All right. We're gonna take one more call here. Hello. Thanks for calling Low Value Mail. Who am I speaking with? Hey, Danny. What's going on, brother? This is Chris. Hey, Chris. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, brother. How you guys? Uh, very good. One moment while I patch you through. All right. You're on with yeah. Richard. Let's hear the numerology. Are you familiar with numerology, Richard? A little bit, yeah. Okay, Chris is a big numerology guy. All right. Hey, what's going on, Richard? Hey there. Um, quit, I, I, I will get into numbers briefly, but it, it's mainly, mainly going to revolve around, Richard, what do you think of the theory that Timothy McVeigh became Paul Weissapal? Uh, that I don't know anything about. There's a theory that home? Timothy, that oh. he just like kind of started a new life as a new person? Okay, well then, then if you you need to look into this because this is the craziest thing. Um, if you type in Paul Wyosopal, W Y S O P A L, uh-huh. it is Timothy McVeigh. Interesting. I mean, they're the same height. The same Were they saying like his, this guy his death was faked or they something? They look very similar. They, I'm looking at them. W Y S O P A L. Okay, look at look at it, and let me let me let me blow your mind real quick because looks... this is how I'm pretty sure. This they look really similar. <laughs> All right. <laughs> they do look really um, similar. Not identical, but Yeah, this similar. guy does look a lot like him. Yeah, okay, go ahead. And he is in charge. He he works for the FBI. Now get this. You can't find anything on this guy. He allegedly joined the FBI in 1997. And when you type in Paul Weisopal and you start looking up stuff, the one thing that pops up is he was involved with a um, a child sex trafficking ring, and he recovered. He says we recovered a hundred and sixty eight juveniles. Interesting. Okay. And there was a hundred and sixty eight people killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. That's bomb. right. That's right. Now, what are the odds that they're just going to throw out this number? Now, this, <laughs> this is would when be, it gets, this I love this it, shit, but I'm like, how fucking insane would it be for them to like fake Timothy McVeigh's death row execution and then and, not only hide him, 
They're like, this well, guy's a we fucking. We're talking about the they're FBI. Gonna get, they're going to give us clues too, right? Not yeah, but they're like, they're not even like we're just going to like stash this dude in Central America or something to never be seen right. again. This guy is the they special agent in face. charge of the Tampa division, <laughs> and he was in charge of the Pulse nightclub shooting. <laughs> okay, interesting. So yeah, I, this you know, I hadn't heard about. about Okay, well, then, then this is where I'll break down real quick just the numerology. So what it is is I look at people's names, dates, and I try to find the patterns. Well, So A equals 1, B equals 2. You kind of get the idea. When you mm-hmm. type in Paul Weissapal, you get 116. Timothy McVeigh was killed, executed on 116. Okay. So this guy's name is literally the, the day that the Timothy McVeigh character died. And also, I also I talk about how the Jesuits are behind everything. I called in last week and I said, hey, you know, it's 177 days from Kennedy's birthday to his assassination. Jesuit order 177. When you type in Timothy McVeigh in the purest 177. So they give us clues. This guy looks just like him. He's definitely 6'3". It's just do a little more research on this guy. I'm telling you, you'll see it and you'll be like, man. Different nose, uh, but obviously they would they would go give him a nose job or some sort of cosmetic surgery. But even their nose or even their nose is very similar. Yeah, I mean this li- guy's tall. Timothy yeah, McVeigh was six three. Uh, you, that you definitely can't uh, cosmetically change away. That yeah, I mean he looks like him. There's lots of people who look like people. That would be just the absolute most insane thing of all time. To, right, uh, well, crazy, but like I said, how, what are the odds of 168 juveniles be recovered? And he's talking about it, and his number associated with Timothy McVeigh is he killed 168 people. Certainly That's interesting. All. I'll just, I'll just certainly <laughs> interesting. I'll leave it at that. I yep. love the show as always. You know, keep on rocking, you guys. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks you got it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've never heard that he does really look like him though but he does look like i him. mean i get all the time that everybody tells me i look like the coach of the eagles so but i probably look as close to the coach of the eagles as he does to timothy mcveigh and i assure you i'm not the coach of the eagles um well, the, the thing the thing i have issue with with is well why would they come and give clues to us you know exactly <laughs> you're like they just their budgets are so bloated that they're like just so many people have nothing to do with the fbi although i actually do believe that that they have way more people than they probably need, and so they just dick sure. around doing all sorts of shit that is, you know, kind of busy work ish. Uh, all right, we got another call here. One moment, please. Thank you again for uh, coming on the show, Richard. Hello, Hicks calling Low Value Mail. Who am I speaking with? Hey, what's up, Danny? This is uh, Fred Kaczynski from Prescott. Fred, I believe this is. Uh, was this Fred Kaczynski? You got it. Hey, how's it going? You're on with Richard. Hey, Go so, ahead. Uh, really love your work. Uh, you're one of the good ones. Thank you. Uh, one of the good, one of the good comedians. Oh, I'm talking about Danny. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm not sorry, Richard. You. You're Richard. You're great too. Richard, you're great too. Hey, hey, both of you guys. Appreciate your work. Uh, it's a good topic. I tuned in late, so um, yeah, I don't want to be redundant, but that was uh, I was trying to remember that name, Paul Weissable. I had heard that affiliation before that is a uh, peculiar thing for sure um but yeah in regards to the fbi i don't know if this is uh if this is being redundant it sounds like you guys were kind of touching on it uh there's a book called terror factory 
and uh, it outlines many cases where it, it seems uh, in a very Whitmer-esque fashion, they entrap all kinds of uh, all kinds of people into their schemes, and uh, yeah, in order to finance some of their operations to get funding, uh, we probably don't ever hear about a lot of those activities. But uh, you know what we do hear about is the overt uh, terror schemes that they supposedly thwart, or maybe not even, maybe actually get carried out in one fashion or another. Basically, so, essentially, the uh, idea being like just, that this is the one that got away from them. Uh, well, I don't think it even has to be that it got away from them because it's still, I can still see uh, actual acts of terror serving some of their purposes because it seems that the FBI, uh, you know, I, I was starting to read Whitney Webb's book, One Nation Under Blackmail. And she talks about the history of these intelligence groups, including the FBI, basically uh, saying that J. Edgar Hoover early on, you know, he had a, about a 50 year reign uh, over, you know, as a director. And uh, he was compromised early on because of his, some of his proclivities sure. in a certain hotel. They would set him up with, you know, cross-dressing and, you know, some homosexual activity and whatnot. So, that's the reason that the uh, the mafia, in a lot of ways, got so out of hand and in bed with uh, the government. You can call it deep state if you want, but the collusion between these different groups uh, and and just unfettered uh, influence. You now, know, do you uh, have do you have any theory as to why they would or what what would to be gained? from the federal government blowing up a federal building like that? Because again, it didn't seem like they tried to, it wasn't like, you know, 9-11, they passed all these laws, they took away all these freedoms. Like that never happened as far as I understand in 95. They they actually, they did pass the- Okay, well then um, here we go. Effective Anti-Terrorism and Death Penalty Act uh, in 1990, it was either um, late 95, yeah, I think it was the fall of 95. As a result of this specifically? As a result of the Oklahoma City bombing, and it actually was a precursor to the Patriot Act, which authorized oh. roving wiretaps, and it gave the law enforcement expanded wiretapping powers. And that was, in fact, named, you know, in part due to the Oklahoma City bombing, the the um, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Okay. And so the, yeah, and it was actually so Joe Biden who sponsored that legislation. Um, How about that? Among, among How, others. Yeah. That still seems I, I, I still seems so crazy. I, I mean, I guess an argument can be made also with nine eleven, where you're like, so they went and killed all these two hundred people, close to two hundred people, one hundred sixty eight people, just so they could pass. Well, their... you know what I like to do is I, I compare it and look at um, over in in Italy in the sixties, seventies, well, mostly seventies and eighties, they had what were called the years of lead. They called it that because of all of the terrorist bombings and shootouts and things that happened and they had a whole bunch of acts of terrorism bombing train stations and uh, supermarket murder a bunch of people were murdered and butchered in the supermarket subway all these public acts of terrorism and it turns out that those were all part of a program called operation gladio which was ran by the intelligence agencies Mm -hmm. and nato and they were trying to sow terror in the populace because it, it benefited the governing bodies because it caused people to want a security state 
And so it greatly That's benefited right. the, the, the ruling bodies um, to inflict trauma on the population. So it's certainly That's possible right. it then. It seems some... like a. Yeah, maybe I'm yeah, just like naive. Like a very, uh, a very typical, uh, your, your standard Hegelian dialectic type yeah. uh, strategy there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I did go through Paul Williams' uh, book of Operation Gladio. Fantastic uh, book. Just super, super dense. Yeah, yeah. Just the amount of uh, detail is, is astonishing, you know. But uh, it just goes to show that these groups uh, have no morals at all. They're, they're really ruthless and really cold-blooded in order to uh, achieve their ends. I, I do think they believe that the ends justify the means. Yeah, and, uh, and for, yeah, yeah for probably I guess 168 people's jump change. Uh huh. So, well, if just look yeah, at right. what they did I... at Waco, they they'll murder women and children. They blew away. Uh, yeah. Uh, they the guy at, at Ruby Ridge, you know, they they killed they killed him and they killed shot his uh, killed his wife, um, Randy Weaver's wife. Um, she you know mm -hmm. and uh, shot her in the head, burned up all those kids at Waco. So they they don't give a damn about you or your kids. Yeah, right. I'm so cynical right. now. So the I don't, man who was, uh, they don't care. Yeah, you said the man who was, uh, you believe it was a murder. I think you're 100% correct because yeah. he was conducting his own investigation. He had some inside knowledge that they didn't want to, uh, didn't want to let out. And they have no problem disappearing anyone who's a threat to the, uh, the preferred narrative. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I, Damn, well, I forgot. This. Oh, yeah, one more thing I want sure. to mention. Uh, well, are you familiar with James Corbett of the Corbett Report? Yes. Yeah, I, like, I mentioned at I the like beginning that, that that's uh, he he's been on the show before, but that's where I first heard about this OKC stuff. Uh, was was from a, oh, right, like, yeah, like yeah. a TikTok of his or something that was went that I found on Twitter of all places, I guess. But he did a yeah, good job, I, I think, with his a... coverage. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. I should probably refreshed, but uh, he, I think it was called The Secret Life of Timothy McVeigh, one of the videos he put out. And uh, I think in regards to that World Trade Center one in 93 you mentioned, I think he also put out a video where he provided a recording that was between an FBI uh, agent and some... Uh, some Arab guy. I can't remember his name, but uh, yeah, I think that was you know, Ahmad, uh, Ahmad Salam. Okay, that sounds familiar. Yeah, and and he had recordings, show, you know, recordings of him and his FBI yeah. handlers, and the FBI oh, is right. asking exactly that. Uh, that is the uh, he is asking the FBI if he can replace the explosives with inert powder. He wants to do that. And the FBI is telling mm -hmm. him, no, 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 don't do that. They want him to stay on with the bombing operation and to push it along. And basically they failed in handling him with any sort of finesse. And he ended up leaving the F uh, no longer participating with the FBI. And he ended up leaving the plot altogether. And that created the vacuum where Ramzi Youssef came and got involved. And, and then it became much more deadly. But the FBI had an opportunity there to stop the 93 World Trade Center bombing. And from the right. recordings that Ahmad Salam made, you can tell that they're more interested in continuing their investigation than stopping any kind of bombing. Right. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything else, caller? Anything else you want to add? Oh, that's, a, that, that's about it. Just uh, 
Shout out to you guys. Great work. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Thank you. All right. We're, we're going to uh, wrap this bad boy up shortly. Thank you again for coming on. So is there, is there anything else? Because there was something that I came across, across um, that some people regarding the explosion said so something along the lines of a nitrous gas cloud that some people talk about as uh, I don't know if you know anything about this. It's just I was doing some uh, just preparation for this. And some people say essentially like uh, I believe like however the explosion was, there was some sort of nitrous gas cloud, which uh, mm-hmm. above it, which I believe uh, was the reason why it uh, could not have been ammonium nitrate. Uh, I th- oh, okay. I think that's what it was. I'm just I hadn't heard about that. No, okay. Yeah, so- yeah I, had, I, I hadn't heard about that. What I often hear is because it was an ammonium nitrate bomb. Um, people will talk about how uh, after you set off an info bomb, the ammonia part of ammonium nitrate will have a credibly pungent smell that cause you to, to choke and gag and stuff. And yeah, people people were saying how, well, none of the rescue personnel had any symptoms like that. And their, their whole argument is trying to say that it wasn't even an info bomb because it didn't have this pungent, you know, air chemical in the air. And has that uh, been debunked know, in any capacity? Like, has that... Not that I'm aware of, but, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time focusing on it because I look at it as like, well, I'm not an expert in explosives and I'm hearing right. one group saying that, but I'm not hearing really anyone else. But on that subject, I do like to look to see what explosive experts do have to say about it uh, because it, it, you know, that that's who you want to look to is the expert. Gotcha. And I guess seeing as like, you know, CNN has probably like, you know, they, they've covered the Terrence Yiki thing at this point. Uh, do you see any this going anywhere other than kind of where we're at? Like, are, are we kind of just reached the end of this? Are there, are there any freedom of information uh, requests that might uh, yield anything going forward? Like you were saying that that attorney in Utah has a bunch of them out. Right. Like, yeah, I- that's certainly a possibility. I mean, if the FBI is forced through the courts to release some of the additional documents, who knows what information might be in there? Certainly, if they have held on to and not destroyed any surveillance videos, that information could be very important to us. Um, it's always possible that there may be additional information that will come up. And um, so all hope is not lost. But at this point, uh, I think it's we need to look at things like CNN covering the Yiki story as a net positive. Yeah, it's very, that just seems it, like a, the whole thing might be a little long in the tooth, I suppose, if once they're getting to it, you know what I mean? Right. But well, it's um, almost like now it's okay for them to question it or talk yeah. about it. Hold, hold, let me just say, yeah, let me take this long last call here one moment. Hello. Thank you for uh, continuing trying to get through. You are on Low Valley Mail. Who am I speaking with? Oh, hey, this is uh, Meg from Idaho. Meg from Idaho. Thank you for trying to for keep trying to get through. You're the last call of the night, Meg from Idaho. You're on with Richard. Go hey, ahead, I please. I just want to remind you, um, you guys keep asking why would they do this? Yes. Uh, remember that the... Clinton's had an election coming up in 1996. Okay, so so you're so you're, you're contending that it was a your contention is a fe- federal election that they would somehow uh, that would kind of get, um, I guess, democratic support. They they yeah they had to get more people in, and honestly, the people that they had control of were still the leftover retard. We told you to Yeah. Hey, hold on a second. Can you, uh, I don't know if you're on like a speakerphone or something. It's kind of, you're kind of muffled. It's, it's hard to hear from you. Okay. Yeah. Right. Much better. Okay. Much, 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 much better. All right. Yep. And also, what about um, the 
the bomb guys in that office, the I can't remember what they're called, but they were testing a new bomb in that office the week before, the Oklahoma City bombing, which I think would explain why the bomb did so much more damage because they had ordinances all over in there. All over the build, yeah, like yeah. in the building? Right above yeah. the uh, daycare, in fact, was the ATF's evidence locker. And in the ATF's yeah. evidence locker, they had a whole bunch of ordnance, explosives, bullets, machine guns, a bunch of things they should not have had um, in a federal yeah, building, m- much less above a daycare. Yeah. Well, so, and was the daycare just like a private daycare, or was it for uh, federal employees to like it, drop it? It was for federal employees, I believe. Gotcha. Right. It was for parents who worked in the building. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But imagine, you know, you've got a daycare in a federal building and you think it's wise to store plastic explosives above them. Yeah, that's you know pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if yeah, something no, like anything like that happens. That's just what now. I thought was the wildest thing. And then, you know, like you said, the the messages that went out and said they've got to show up to work. Oh. Right. Yeah, the not to show up to work thing so. is just you know un- unless someone can give a pretty good explanation of why that is. That, oh yeah, it's, that seems incredibly it's kind of, suspicious. Kind of damning. Yeah, absolutely suspicious. Yeah. If you go and look at the Dateline or the twenty, that is the twenty twenty uh, broadcast. The the families want to know where they interview this guy who you know was told who said to him that they were not here today. They were paged and told not to come into work. And his his supervisor was standing there with him and observed this exchange so it's not like this one guy's word you know you've got multiple witnesses to this you have another witness named tiffany bible and she was a, a paramedic and working on the rescue efforts that day and she said oh my god i i looking at the explosive damage she said you know my god are your co-workers okay and the guy said oh that they weren't they weren't there today you know crazy it's just crazy yeah. that they well, never insisted to find out the why on that i mean i guess maybe right. that's the whole point though is to go why they have zero incentive because they actually don't want to probably creates more questions than uh than answers uh anything else there caller uh no well thanks for just covering the subject i'm really interested in this so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, thank, guys. thanks for calling thank you um, yeah, and thank you again, Richard, for coming on. So any anything else you want to, one last thing, you anything you'd like to talk about? I feel like we covered this uh, pretty well. So otherwise, where, where can people find you? Where's the best place? Yeah, so if people go to richardbooth.substack.com or if they go to libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC, they'll find my archive of thousands of news reports on the case. I have them indexed there in chronological order. So a person can go, a student on the case maybe could go and read the news reports from the day of the bombing, even through the present. And they can see the whole thing unfold right there in real time, looking at the news reports. They can see as it happened, as the story developed, as it came out, they could see the June 1995 reports with them saying FBI saying John Doe 2 doesn't exist. And they can see it's all right there in the paper. Um, the fact there were multiple people, that there were surveillance cameras, that the ATF wasn't there, all that stuff was covered in the news report. So people can go and check that out and see it for themselves. Okay. And also uh, on Twitter, okay, same OKC facts? Yep. On, tr- on Twitter, um, OKC underscore facts. Underscore facts. And I'll, I'll put that all below. Um, all right, everybody. That has been the show. Thank you for joining me. As mentioned, no show next week. Thank you again to Richard Booth for coming on. Uh, this is uh, great, and you really know your stuff on this topic. Uh, I will not be here on the bathhouse for the next two weeks, but uh, it will be going on in my stead. Hope to see some of you in Europe 
Have a good night, everybody. Goodbye. Yeah.